Well, Congress has begun a debate on the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. That's DACA for DREAMers. You may not have realized that Congress was allowed to debate things. The Constitution, of course, decrees that, quote, Congress shall gather to investigate people investigating other people who are investigating the investigations by Congress, which will then be investigated, unquote. But sure, if you want to debate stuff now and then or pass a law or something, knock yourself out. So Congress will discuss what we're going to do with all these people who entered the country illegally. Here's a rundown of the arguments on both sides. The Republicans feel that the nation's borders need to be secure. Borders define a nation, and without them, the nation essentially vanishes. The Democrats feel that Americans who are already here have come to know the Democrats too well and therefore will no longer vote for them, so they need to bring in some ignorant strangers fast or they'll lose their offices and limousines, so shut up, you're a racist. The Republicans say that the American people are generous in allowing newcomers, but that generosity has been abused by illegals, and it's time to enforce the rule of law on which free nations depend. The Democrats make a high-pitched screen noise until no one can think and everyone has a headache, then they point at a sad-looking Mexican child and say, shut up, you're a racist. The Republicans feel that there should be restrictions on immigrants being able to bring family members from their country to ours. Democrats say that ours rhymes with flowers, flowers are put on graves, graves rhymes with slaves, so Republicans hate black people and shut up, you're a racist. One pro-immigrant congressman put it this way. People who enter the United States without our permission are illegal aliens, and illegal aliens should not be treated the same as people who entered the U.S. legally. While an anti-immigrant congressman put it this way. The president's decision to end DACA was heartless and it was brainless. When Chuck Schumer found out that both congressmen were in fact himself, he demanded an investigation and Congress got back to its usual business. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. All right, happy uh, Valentine's Day. It's also Mailbag Day, so we'll be sobbing. <laughs> oh, <you're wrong. laughs> I just heard from Lindsay. You know, she's about to give birth, so soon we'll have a, a lot of screaming. When I just won't just be her screaming, uh, and it's also Lent, which is the beginning of uh, when you know Christians uh, start to imitate. Uh, Christ's penance and his fasting in the desert. And you want to begin that penance by watching Michael Knowles at The Conversation, which is today at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. You will be so sorry. Your sins will definitely be forgiven. Uh, it'll stream live on the Daily Wire Facebook page and the Daily Wire YouTube channel and will be free for everyone to watch. But only subscribers get to ask the questions, just like the mailbag. If you want to ask questions as a subscriber, log into the website dailywire.com watch the live stream and head over to the conversation page. After that, just start typing into the Daily Wire chat box and Knowles will answer all live questions as they come in for an entire hour or until he just doesn't know the answer, which should come after about five minutes. Once again, subscribe to get your questions answered by the sad and dateless Michael Knowles will be sitting there on Valentine's Day, sitting around with you people. That's how sad he is. At 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, you can join the conversation. You know what is interesting to me about this uh, DACA debate there, 
Congress is actually debating this. And Trump, Trump has been incredibly reasonable about this. Now, whether he's doing that as a political gambit, you know, who can say everything that politicians do is a political gambit, but he has made a really good offer. I mean, here he is. He was elected, build the wall, throw the Mexicans out. Mexicans are rapists. This is terrible. We don't want any more Mexicans. You know, he said all that. That's his base. A lot of people feel like that. Ann Coulter has been screaming about him, at him about the wall since he got elected. She sends out a tweet every uh, day saying number of miles on the wall built zero, and she does like every day. He's offering to not only let the dreamers stay, but have a path to citizenship and to give a path to citizenship for a million, over a million others. I think it's close to two million others. So he's actually being very generous. And what he's saying is, yeah, but, but you've got to secure the wall so this doesn't, you've got to secure the border so this doesn't happen again. Give me some money for my wall. Give me some money for security. Uh, let's stop the chain migration. It really is uh, a very, very reasonable offer. And they, they just keep coming back because nobody really wants to do this. Everybody's afraid of doing it. So they keep coming back. Well, let's just do the Dreamers now. A clean Dreamer bill, they call it. It's not a clean bill because it just uh, creates the situation in which the same problem is going to happen again. You know, And I think that's that's the... That's the thing that the people do not want this. The people simply do not want it. They want to see immigration curtailed. Of course they do. Of course they do. It only makes sense. And my, my thing is, what's the argument against this? What is the, I, I can never figure this out. What is the argument against securing the border? 80% of the people say borders should be secure. And of course, you can say, well, that is the policy, but we haven't done it. And all these people saying we want sanctuary cities. You know, what is the argument? And I just feel, you know, to me, it's a rule of law thing. This has never been, immigration has never been one of my big issues. It's never been, I'm much more concerned with regulation. That's why I've been so happy with uh, Trump because of the rolling back of regulation. But, but I do not understand why it's not simply a rule of law issue. You know, if you have, it, we are a nation of laws, not of men. It doesn't matter if Chuck Schumer cries. It doesn't matter if his chin wobbles and his eyes fill. That's not the point. The point is they pass, these are the same guys. They pass the laws obey the law. And you know, Chuck Schumer is not the only person who speaks with forked tongue on this. We have a clip of Dianne Feinstein from 1993. This is clip number seven. Listen to this. This is a country that's based on immigration. And we all know that. And yet at times you become so overtaxed, you have to concentrate on saying the people who should be here are those who come legally at this time. And we've got to, for the time being, enforce our borders. And now here she is in the present day. If Congress doesn't act now and pass a law, President Trump's decision to terminate this program will have devastating consequences for the nearly 800,000 families across the United States, particularly those in California. This decision to end DACA without first ensuring that young people have legal protection is why we are demanding a vote on the DREAM Act as soon as possible. Now, now this, you know, the, the two-facedness, they have to do this. They have to talk tough on immigration because of the people, because the people, people are ready to cut legal immigration. They have a sense that too many people have come in now and we need time to assimilate them, which is the people are almost always right about this because it's the people, these people go and live where the people live. They don't go and live where Diane Feinstein lives. She's not harboring in her house, you know, in her however many houses she has. She is not harboring illegal immigrants and neither is Chuck Schumer and neither is Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper. And so they can, their chins can tremble over the sad-eyed Mexicans all they want and their eyes can fill and all that stuff. But they're not doing this. The people are the 
ones who are suffering from it and who understand the suffering of their neighbors and people in, in uh, Texas and in uh, Arizona and, uh, and uh, New Mexico. They, they know what's going on. So they have to talk tough. But this is, you know, tomorrow we're going to, it's tomorrow, we're going to have Douglas Murray on who's written this excellent, excellent book called The Strange Death of Europe about how immigration in part, it's, called, it's got a subtitle like Immigration, Identity, and Islam. And immigration in part is one of the reasons Europe is dying, if not already dead. And all through the time they were bringing in these huge, huge numbers of immigrants, the people were saying no. And the, the politicians were making speeches saying, we won't. And then they did. And that's exactly what's been happening here. And you start to wonder, you know, you start to wonder when the immigration comes in and starts to change the, the nature of neighborhoods, when they bring in Somalis and they put them in the middle of, you know, Michigan or something like this. So, you know, a town, you start to wonder, do these people hate us? Do they hate what they, we are? Do they hate themselves? Do they hate everything that the West, I mean, the West has given them everything, every single thing, everywhere, anywhere on earth where a man walks free, it's because of America. You know, if, if it wasn't killing off the Nazis, it was destroying the Soviet Union. And they always say, well, you know, it's Gorbachev. It wasn't Gorbachev. Gorbachev did everything he could to keep the Soviet Union alive. They're lying about that. It was Reagan. It was the Pope. It was the West. It was Maggie Thatcher. It was the West that brought the Soviet Union down. Every single human being who walks in political freedom does so either because we freed them or we protect their freedom or we keep them free. Why do they, you know, they just hate, you know, over on the, uh, the Federalist, a uh, really good uh, site. I like the Federalist. The editor, Ben uh, Dominic, wrote a piece called Dear America, Your News Media Absolutely Hates You. And he's referencing back to the, the way during the Olympics they touted North Korea. Let me just read just a little piece of this. The American media, and the media and the left are the same thing. There's no, there's no space between the media and the left at all. The, the American media, time and again, illustrates its utter hatred for the nation and its people in those newspapers and in newspapers and on television. Having judged the American project kaput after the election of Donald Trump, they are now stooping to the level of defending the North Koreans, perhaps the most brutal and heinous regime in the world today, if it's not Iran, which Obama also helped. Thanks to some side eye from its minister of propaganda, the sister of Kim Jong-un, uh, that the headlines, if the headlines are to believe, be believed, North Korea heading for diplom diplomacy gold medal at Olympics. That's from the Reuters. That's the story of the moment that American media want to tell about this moment. I wish this was an exaggeration, he says. Witness this story from CNN Today with its dripping credulousness in attacking Mike Pence with a story sourced entirely to a diplomatic source close to the North Korean regime who says Pence, quote, degraded the image of the United States as a superpower by meeting with North Korean defectors along with Otto Warmbier's father and by speaking strongly against North Korea on multiple occasions. Uh, you know, I'm going to play just a clip of that in just a minute. But first, we have to talk about Upside.com. You know, I, I have fond memories. Some, you know, Not all my memories of working in Hollywood are fond. But the ones that are fond was when I was in, living in London and in New York. And they would fly me out. And they would always take such great care of me. I mean, my, I remember my wife, the first time I went to Hollywood, I remember her taking a picture of me getting in the limo because we were broke. You know, we'd been broke up into that moment. And suddenly they were throwing money at me and putting me in limos and flying me first class. And when you fly like that, there's always somebody on the other end of the line who can help you out. Where am I supposed to be? Is there going to be a car waiting for me? What is there a change in the schedule? 
If you don't have that, if you're not working for a big corporation or for Hollywood that'll help you, you can go to Upside.com. Upside.com provides all those services to small businesses. So it's Upside becomes your mission control while you're traveling. It looks out for you every step of the way. It handles any problem that might pop up. And they've got a team of specialists working 24-7 to make sure your flight hotel and car rental all go off without a hitch. They monitor your trip around the clock, proactively keep you posted on everything from if it's going to rain to alternate return flights home in case you want to squeeze in one more meeting before you leave town. It really does make a tremendous difference to have that kind of care as you're going forward. For easy booking, competitive prices, and a team that always has your back, go to Upside.com slash Andrew to book your next business trip. Let them know we sent you because then they will continue to sponsor the show and I can continue to talk to you. Sign up today for your free account and get a free pair of Bose headphones on your first business trips. That's what I use when I write. I use Bose headphones to keep out the noise. Uh, that's Upside.com slash Andrew. A $600 minimum purchase is required within 90 days to get this deal. See site for complete details. Let's play this piece of CNN. This is CNN covering the Olympics. I know we covered this with Knowles on Monday, but it's just, just to remind you for a minute, the way they played the, this, you know, uh, Pence and the sister of Kim Jong-un were sitting in the same booth, and they're going to mention the fact that Pence had her moved. She was going to sit right behind him. And I probably didn't want her to put one of those poisoned handkerchiefs with which they killed her brother. They didn't want to put, him to put one of those poisoned handkerchiefs, so he had her moved. But just, just listen to the way CNN covered this. Vice President Pence sitting just feet away from Kim Jong-un's sister for the Olympic opening ceremonies. No handshake, no talk, in a diplomatic deep freeze. CNN's Will Ripley joins me now live from Pyeongchang, South Korea. Will, no interactions whatsoever. What might this mean? Well, clearly this was an attempt by the United States and the vice president not to give any more legitimacy to the North Korean regime than the mere fact that they were sitting so closely together already did. So the vice president actually switched seats to sit farther away from Kim Yo-jong and Kim Yong-nam. Kim Yo-jong, the sister of the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and uh, Kim Yong-jong, the, uh, the uh, ceremonial head of state. Uh, there, were, there was no handshaking whatsoever when the unified Korean delegation came in March. Vice President uh, Pence notably stayed sitting. He did not stand up. Uh, he did not cheer. And uh, again, this is certainly a propaganda win, nonetheless, for North Korea to have these images showing two top-level officials sitting with South Korea's President Moon Jae-in and the vice president just a short distance away. So, so to whom was this a PR victory? I mean, to me, when you're insulting Pence for bringing the victims of the North Korean regime to, to the place, maybe that's a PR victory. Why isn't that a... By the way, her t real title is she's the Minister of Propaganda and Agitation. So <laughs> that's, that's what they do in these tyrannical countries. But Pence has just been a huge target. Obviously, he was the administration's face at the Olympics, but they went after him like crazy. And there's this one figure st skater, Adam Rippon, is that how he pronounced his name? Excellent figure skater, and he's gay, which, like... Big surprise. You know, the old joke about what's the hardest thing about figure skating? The hardest thing about figure skating is telling your father you're gay. So, <laughs> so he comes out and he's been nothing but hammer Pence. And it's all, you know, oh, Pence, you know, wants to convert gay people. And I'm not talking to Pence and I'm not going to the White House and I won't shake his hand. And suddenly, because, you know, as as uh, Instapundit says, go, go woke, go broke, you know, suddenly probably he's getting some feedback that maybe this isn't uh, going so well. Suddenly he turns up and I don't I want to talk about Mike Pence. This isn't about Mike Pence. Here he is. I have no problem talking about, you know, wh what I've said uh, because I stand by it. 
But I think right now, the Olympics are about Olympic competition and the athletes involved. I don't want to distract from their Olympic experience. And I don't want my Olympic experience to be about my pens. Um, you know, I want it to be about my amazing skating and um, being America's sweetheart. Yeah, well, too late, Dreamboat. You know, <laughs> it's like you start. It's like they start it, but they can't finish it. But the thing with Pence, and I, I really like Mike Pence. I was in his office uh, when I was in Washington. I got, he wasn't there, but I got a tour of his ceremonial office. It was really cool because he has this desk that was gotten by Teddy Roosevelt. This huge desk, and the, there's a tradition where it, it went finally to the vice presidents, but everybody who uses it signs the drawer. So you open up the drawer, and like Eisenhower signed it, and uh, you know all all the vice presidents. Very very cool. And I told the guy who works with Pence, he's kind of Pence's aide, I said, I'm a big fan of Pence. And he was, he was very moved by that. You can see he really loved his boss. And um, I, always, I always shorten his name to Minch, you know, it's just because I think he's a good guy. But when you see the kind of attacks, they're always the same. They're always about, always the religion. I mean, I saw this clip from The View where these harpies went after him for his religion. Uh, this is cut number three. Just play this. Jesus tells Mike Pence things to say. Um, when was she around I mean, Mike Pence, though? Because well, obviously she was around because she she knows more uh, a lot more than I think that, that we all know about Mike Pence. But I, what I do know about Mike Pence is I went to law school in Indiana. He is a hated figure there, actually. He's not very popular at all. And I think when you have a Mike Pence that now sort of puts this religious veneer on things and calls people values voters, I think we're in a dangerous situation. Look, I'm Catholic, I, I'm a faithful person, but I don't know that I want my vice president um, well, you know, speaking in tongues and having Jesus around. speak Like to I him. said before, I don't know if I want it's that. It's one thing to talk to Jesus. It's another thing when Jesus talks to you. Exactly. Okay, well, that's different. if I'm not correct, but I'm, I'm hearing voices. You know, I, I told this story a long time ago, once before, but I was a judge on a journalism contest once, and I was on the phone with the other judges, and obviously was the only, this is during the Bush administration, the W. Bush administration, and obviously was the only conservative on the, on the line, and one of them started going off on George W. Bush saying he prayed before he went to war in Iraq or in Afghanistan, so what's the difference between him and, you know, the terrorists? Because they both pray. I mean, this is the way these guys think. And we saw this at the Democratic National Convention when they were booing God. We saw it again at the State of the Union when they sat on their hands when uh, Trump paid tribute to God. I, they hate this place. They hate the way people are here. They hate the people. They hate the God. They hate the country. You know, yesterday, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, intelligence officers sat in a a panel before the Senate. And the big news is because they can't leave off this Rob Porter story. The big news was Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, said no, they did too vet, you know, Rob Porter. And when the White House says they didn't vet him fully, that wasn't so, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So that's that was the big story there. And this other thing that he's talked about, about the fact that the Russians are probably going to come after us in the midterm elections as well. So we have to be worried about that. I'm not really that worried. You know, when they actually went in and got the DNC's emails, that was disturbing. Of course, it was Podesta's fault. He gave them, he was fished, he gave them his uh, password. But okay, that, that's not something I want to see. But 
When they send out misinformation, they've been doing that forever. We do it to them. It's kind of par for the course. A free society should be able to counter that by publishing the right information, by pointing out that this is a website by the Russians. I, you know, that just doesn't bother me all that much. But the thing that struck me was this exchange. One senator asked Christopher Wray, right? He's the head. He's the guy who replaced James Comey about the reputation of the FBI after all these scandals and all this news about how they may have scuttled the Hillary Clinton investigation, how they may have uh, spied on the Trump campaign. And Trump had sent out this tweet that said, after years of Comey with the phony and dishonest Clinton investigation and more running the FBI, its reputation is in tatters, worst in history. And they asked Ray about this, and he said, no, everything is great. I go to every division I go to has patriots, people who could do anything else with their careers, but have chosen to work for the FBI because they believe in serving others. And the feedback I get from uh, our state and local law enforcement partners, from our foreign partners, from the folks we work with in the private sector and the community, uh, office after office after office has been very, very gratifying uh, and reassuring to me. Um, and I'm a big believer in the idea that the FBI speaks through its work, through its cases, through the victims mm -hmm. uh, it protects. Uh, and I encourage our folks not to get too hung up on what I consider to be the noise uh, on TV and in social media. See, the problem with that is, I mean, he's absolutely right. I keep saying this over and over again, the rank and file of the FBI are fine. And I have, I have heard that many of them are very humiliated by the way the upper level of the FBI has been working. Those are the only people that we've been picking on. They're the ones who made the decision. They're the ones who politicized the, uh, the, the bureau. But some of that noise that he's ignoring is the noise of the people. Some of that noise is us that he doesn't want them to pay attention to. Uh, Martin Savage, who does these uh, focus groups on CNN. The only time you ever hear anything true on CNN is when the ordinary they interview ordinary people. And he had this focus group about the investigation, the Russian investigation. And listen to what the people say, because they get it exactly right, as almost always. These voters trust Trump, but they do not trust the Russia investigation. They consider the whole thing a political witch hunt uh, from the from the get go. Uh, to be honest, it's a disgrace. They don't believe in the investigation because they don't believe the investigators. Do you have faith in the FBI? <laughs> Hell no. No? No, absolutely not. You think that the FBI has a political bias I in, believe, in this case? I, I believe yes. Yeah. Okay, I want to preface by saying it's not the FBI, it's, it's the leadership of the FBI. Agreed. That has politicize this. And in this situation, the people that have at the top of the food chain have decided that they don't like the game. They're, they're going to change it. They're going to play by their rules. So these guys are saying the same thing about the leadership, and I'm going to show you which one of them is right. But first, I'm going to talk about my teeth, because I know you're sitting there. You want to pay attention to what I'm saying, but you're just too dazzled by the whiteness of my teeth. And the truth is, this is absolutely true. I, I, I was having this problem with my teeth. They kept going gray really quickly. And I don't know if this was the fact that I drink coffee. and I don't smoke that many cigars. Every now and again, Knowles is trying to kill me, so he gives me a cigar. But I don't smoke that many cigars. But it, they just kept going gray, and I stopped smiling in photographs and everything like that. And I went to the dentist, and I asked the lady who cleans my teeth, what do I do? And she said, you got to get an electric toothbrush, and it has changed everything. But the problem with normal electric toothbrushes is that they are the size of a bazooka. You cannot travel with them. They're huge. you got to keep plugging them in. Quip has this beautiful, narrow, thin, battery-powered electric toothbrush that is so stylish and so easy to carry around and just easier to use altogether, and it does... it. 
it does that thing where they've got the, the amount of vibrations that you're supposed to have. It, it packs just the right amount of vibrations into this slim design. It also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere, whether it's going in your gym bag or carry-on or you're just taking it whenever you travel. Quip's subscription plan, and this is very important too, they told me about this as the dentist too, it refreshes your brush uh, on a schedule, delivering a new brush heads every three months for just $5. And that's what de dentists recommend, not the $5 part, but they recommend that every three months you change the brush heads on this. It is, I gotta say, it has really made a difference for me, and this includes free shipping worldwide. Quip starts at just 25 bucks, which is a good deal. And if you go to getquip.com, that's the website, it's get, G-E-T, quip, Q-U-I-P.com, and then slash Claven. Right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. And I know you're busy brushing your teeth, but you say, how do you spell Claven? But it's K-L-A-V-A-N. That's how you spell Claven. You can get your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Claven. Getquip.com slash Claven. These are good machines. Let them know we sent you so they will keep coming on. Now, let me just finish this, and then we'll get to the mailbag. Great mailbag today. Terrific questions today. Um, Cheryl Atkinson, one of our favorite reporters, like one of the last journalists in America, she published a list of the people who have been, let's say, relocated at the FBI. So if there's no problem at the FBI, if Christopher Wray is telling the truth and the people at CNN have it wrong, there's no problem, nothing. Why have all these people been reassigned? Let me just read you Cheryl Atkinson's list. David Lofman abruptly quit. Lofman was Deputy Assistant Attorney General in charge of counterintelligence, cybersecurity, counterespionage, and export controls. As the Washington Post put it, Lofman had a key role in the Justice Department's investigation of Hillary Clinton and Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. He was one of the justice officials who interviewed Hillary Clinton about her email use. Lofman suddenly quit his job last Wednesday, citing personal reasons. Andrew McCabe, he abruptly quit. He, McCabe was obviously the number two at the FBI. He had been planning to leave, but unexpectedly resigned on January 29th. McCabe was one of the officials who signed off on the controversial FISA warrants for Carter Page, a warrant based largely on the tainted Clinton financed Trump dossier. It turns out that McCabe has been the focus of the Justice Department Inspector General's investigation into how the FBI handled the Clinton email scandal. In late January, it came to light that for three weeks, he'd apparently sat on information about piles of Hillary Clinton's emails showing up on the laptop of Anthony Weiner. James Baker, he was reassigned. The FBI's general counsel was reassigned in late December amid an investigation by House Republicans into whether he was in contact with David Korn, a reporter for the leftist Mother Jones magazine about the Trump dossier. Peter Strzok, we know about him, the lover boy. He was removed uh, from the Mueller investigation after they found his emails to his girlfriend. Bruce Orr was demoted or had been associated, I mean, this is some list, he had been associated deputy attorney general of justice, a top level position, and was director of the organized crime drug enforcement task forces in early December, after a House investigation turned up evidence that Orr had met with Trump dossier author Christopher Steele and later with the founder of Fusion GPS, who hired Steele, uh, he Orr failed to disclose this meetings and he was demoted. It also turned out that Orr's wife had worked for Fusion GPS and was funneling information back to the FBI. James Rabicki, he resigned. Rabicki had been the chief of staff to FBI Director James Comey. He resigned in late January to accept an opportunity in the corporate sector, but the 
the simultaneously Republican lawmakers had been looking into Rybicki's role in the FBI's handling of the Clinton email scandal. That is a lot of high-level people gone over this stuff. And so you can say, I, I understand that Christopher Wray has to keep the rank and file, has to keep their spirits up, but this has really been a devastating scandal for the FBI, and only the fact that the press isn't covering it is keeping more people from being outraged and realizing the tin pot a uh, third world way that Barack Obama ran the government. These guys, I got to say, they hate the people. They do. And I think Obama really disliked this country. He really did. He was wanted he wanted to fundamentally transform the country. Do you say that to your wife? Oh, honey, I love you, but now I'm going to fundamentally transform it. When you fundamentally transform, you kind of want to keep it the same way. You might want to, you know, improve it a little bit. But when you love something, you want to keep it the same way. I got to say, it's no wonder they're so desperate to bring in all these new immigrants. I think what they really want to do is ship us who are already here out. I think we want to change the country entirely. All right, we got the mailbag coming up, but I got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube, come on over to thedailywire.com. Subscribe. Don't be such a cheapskate. It's a lousy 10 bucks a month. You can be in the mailbag or ask questions. You don't have to actually get in the mailbag, but you can ask questions in the mailbag for a lousy 100 bucks. You get a year subscription and the Leftist Tears Tumblr mailbag coming right up. All right, mailbag. <laughs> All right, that was pretty quick. And we send Valentine's Day wishes to Lindsay. She sent me one her new Valentine's Day song. Maybe I'll play that as our traveling music tomorrow. I, I didn't bring it in today. From <clears throat> Levi. Dear Supreme Overlord Clavin, if you could ask one person in all of history a question and guarantee a truthful answer, who would you choose and what your, would your question be? Uh, I would choose Jesus, and my question would be, how am I doing? Yo, <laughs> Jay, the Clave. Uh, yes, no, up, down, give me, give me a sign. Really, just quick, quick, and I'll let you go back to what you were doing. All right, from Greg. Uh, I, Andrew, myself and several of my friends have all had the experience recently of our wives saying when they reach around 50 years of age uh, that they don't want to have sex anymore. We have had various reactions. One guy angrily demanding sex, one just accepting it. For myself, I see it as the end of our marriage and feel disinclined to show affection if I get nothing in return. What are your thoughts on how to react to this situation? Okay, I see uh, two things in this. One, I, I see a good thing, one good thing in this, and the other is really quite not, not so good. And the thing is, when I get these letters, I only have the information in the letters. So that's what I'm going off. I don't have extra information. Uh, the, the thing that I see that it's good is you understand that this is a serious business. When you make a pledge to be faithful to your wife, uh, I think in, inherent in that pledge, obviously, if you break that pledge, you are poisoning the marriage. You are doing uh, really bending the moral atmosphere and breaking the moral atmosphere of the marriage. But on the other side of that, inherent in that, is if your wife refuses sex or uses sex as a weapon or you use sex as a weapon, that also uh, damages, deeply damages the marriage. So at least you're taking it seriously, and I think that's right. But one of the things I didn't hear, you said you have various reactions. One guy angrily demands sex. One has just accepted it, and, and you see it as the end of the marriage. Nobody sat down with their wives and talked to her about it and asked her how she felt about it. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why a woman might feel this way after 50, after, uh, especially after menopause. Women have a lot of physical problems. Their desire typically, not always, but typically kind of goes down a little bit. Maybe she doesn't feel good about not having sex. Did you ask? Did you sit down and talk to her about what's going on? Why is this happening between us? And, or tell, and tell her how you felt about it? I mean, you know, 
for women, sex is an emotional experience. For men, it is kind of like, you know, like going out and buying a pack of cigarettes sometimes. You know, sometimes, I mean, for men, it's also an emotional experience, especially over time, over a long time. But but men are a little bit more casual about sex. I mean, I think it's different to be inside someone than it is to have someone inside you, if only that. Also, women, of course, have so much more uh, at risk and also are just more emotionally attached and better at, at human relations than men are. Part of the reason women might start to not want to have sex is they don't feel that emotional connection anymore. Have you let that fade? Have you let it go away? Are you, do you make it known that she's desirable to you, that this is not just about your desires, not just about what you want? I mean, look, there's a million ways to deal with this, but they all begin with communication. I mean, you can get a therapist in there if you want, a, a marriage therapist, somebody that you can go and talk to together. You know, this is damaging. It is damaging to a marriage if, if she were ill, if she couldn't have sex anymore, that would be one thing. But if it's just withdrawing, you got to find out why. you got to find out where the connection broke. Why did the connection break? How does she feel about this? If, if you are not doing that, it's not the sex that's damaging the marriage. The marriage was already damaged. So I think you got to start with this communication. And really, uh, you know, there's, there's no... I mean, I didn't hear one thing about, like, let's sit down and talk about it. And that's obviously the right uh, reaction, the first thing you should do. From Ricardo, what are your thoughts on the Reformation? Do you think it harmed or helped Christianity in the long run? I could do three shows on this. I mean, I'm, I, this is going to be a, a half answer. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Knowles is Catholic. A lot of other people here are evangelicals. They all get in these arguments. And whenever they get in these arguments, I always feel kind of uh, there's something a little antic and comical because I can just picture Jesus at the Last Supper saying, you know, this is this bread is my body, take it and eat it, this blood is, this wine is my blood, take it and drink it. And the disciples saying, and, and then we kill each other, right? No, no, just eat the bread and drink the wine. And and then we kill each other. No, there's no killing, just eat the bread, drink the wine. Well, wait, but if, if one person believes this and the other person, can we then kill each No, 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 am I stuttering? No killing, you know? <laughs> so I always feel like, you know, you worship Jesus, worship God, follow Jesus, you know, that, that's always the answer for me, and I don't really care all that much about the rituals and the rites, even though some of them are profound and some of them have deep truths in, embedded in them. Is the Reformation a good thing or not? I think the Reformation is a necessary thing. I always believe that uh, Shakespeare wrote Hamlet in response to the Reformation to show what would happen when the church law, I believe Shakespeare was a Catholic and I want, and he wanted to show what would happen when the church lost its monopoly on truth. Truth would come up for grabs. Suddenly you wouldn't know what was right. You wouldn't know what was real. Suddenly your own emotions, as Hamlet say, would, says, would transform the entire world and you'd have nothing to go on. The mad scene in Hamlet reads to me exactly like a modern college professor talking when he's pretending to be mad, but except the college professors are pretending to be sane. Um, so... Shakespeare understood that the world was going to spin into what it has spun into. On top of this, I have to say, recently I've been reading and rereading a lot of medieval literature because I want to write the sequel to Another Kingdom, and this is I'm kind of using this as inspiration and for ideas, and we lost a lot when we lost the Middle Ages. You know, the people who founded the Renaissance were very good propagandists, and they attacked the Middle Ages. One of the reasons it's called the Middle Ages, right? The people who lived in the Middle Ages didn't call it the Middle Ages. It was the people in the Renaissance who said, oh, you know, there were the classic age of Greece and Rome, and then there's us. And in between, there was just the Middle Ages. You know, there was just, that, that was just dark, the Dark Ages. But the people who didn't live there didn't feel that way. And they knew a lot of stuff. When you go back and read their stuff, there was great truth embedded in it, a great certainty about that truth that we have lost and that a, a 
artists and thinkers have been yearning back toward for a long time. The reason I say the Reformation was necessary is because I believe that Christ freed us for freedom. And I think as long as one church had a monopoly on, uh, on Christ, people were not free to choose how they were going to worship, to make uh, decisions about how they related to the Bible, to make decisions about how they related uh, to Jesus, even if those decisions were wrong. So I believe that God lets a lot of evil happen in the world because he wants us to be free. And I don't believe the Reformation was necessary necessarily evil, but I believe that the evil that came out of the Reformation, and there has been much of it, uh, was necessary so that people could be free in their relationships to Christ. I believe that the Catholic Church brought Western civilization through a very dark period into the light and civilized Western civilization to become what it is becoming now. But I think at some point, God said, okay, but now I let you free to worship as you will, and you are going to have to make the decisions. And so it's a, that's a long answer. I could go on and on forever because there's so much, uh, so much to say about it. Um, hello, King of Kings. Actually, that's not one of my, <laughs> not one of my titles. Somebody else has that title. Ruler of all who lack hair. I am indeed the ruler of all who lack hair. I believe in free will, but I've noticed that many atheists believe in predeterminism like Sam Harris. But doesn't predeterminism necessarily imply that there is an entity doing the predetermining? Sam Harris says it is our brain making decisions before we really choose anything. Isn't that like saying that our brain is God or that we constantly are running on instinct? This confuses me. Uh, I don't actually believe that people... This is, this is the new thing around materialists. They're trying to prove that we make decisions on a quantum level before we become conscious of our decisions, and th they think that will prove that we are not making the decisions. There's no us that makes the decisions. I, I think it's nonsense, and in a sense, what you're saying is right. Uh, it implies that somebody, you know, all these things imply a certain order and a certain law, and we don't know of any, and laws are ideas, and we don't know of any ideas without someone to think them. So in other words, what materialists say is they say, well, you're, you have an idea, but it, you only have that idea because of your body. It's just your brain flashing around and your chemicals going through your brain. So there's no there there, right? But in fact, we only, so we only have ideas that materialists say because there is a person there to think them, a body there to think them, a machine, as they would say, there to think them. And yet they believe that there are laws that run the universe, that cause the universe to come into being, without anyone there to think up those ideas, those laws. It, it really does make no sense. Let me just talk for a minute about sex, because I think that sex, sex, I've often said, is where the spirit and the body meet. You know, sex is where we express our love, but it's also where we do the thing that is, we are impelled to do by evolution and by our need to recreate uh, our species. Many things that happen in our bodies are necessities. There's no church where the priests say, you know what, I don't believe in going to the bathroom, so I never go to the bathroom. You have to go to the bathroom, right? Evolution has decreed, has made our bodies, shaped our bodies over the centuries and millennia so that you have to go to the bathroom when it's time to go to the bathroom. But you don't have to have sex. Sex is apparently what these guys, these materialists think we are all about. We are all about passing on our genes, and you do that through sex. And yet, and yet, evolution did not decree that you must have sex. What it did was it gave you pleasure so you would choose to have sex. So evolution, these guys, God, their God is evolution. Evolution itself says that there is a choice involved, right? It didn't say, I mean, it could have just made, you know, you have to go to the bathroom. It made us away. It could have made it so you have to have sex. It gave us the urge. It gave us the desire. It gave us pleasure in doing it. 
but you can decide not to do it. So evolution itself decrees, says that we have freedom of choice. And we know this to continue with the sexual me metaphor, the sexual argument. We know this in the case of rape. If I take a gun and point it at a sexually active woman, a woman who has sex, and I say, you are now going to have sex with me, whether you want to or not, and without committing an act of violence on her body, I coerce her into having sex at the point of a gun. Why is that wrong if she has no free will? The only difference, I mean, she's already having sex. Other men have done this to her, you know, so it's not, it's not violating her in any way like that. It's violating her free will. We know it is a crime almost as bad as murder because it is violating her will. We, and we know this. We know it in our hearts. We know it in our minds. Everything about us knows it. Everything about us knows that we make choices. It's, it's just these guys are taught, they're so in love with their own brains that they're talking themselves out of their minds. That is what the intellectuals do, and it really is, it's incredible to watch them do it. I mean, there's something touching and sad about watching a guy as smart as Sam Harris talk himself out of himself, that I'm not really here. You know, that's basically what Sam Harris is saying. And it's like, if you're not really here, who's picking up the check? You know, <laughs> like, why should I be listening to you at all? And it, it is really, it's really a sad thing that George Orwell said that something about an idea so stupid that only an intellectual uh, could believe it. Jesus, who you may remember from our last show, he, he said that God has revealed things, has hidden things from the wise and has shown them to little children. And I think uh, this, is, this is the kind of thing that he was talking about. Should I do one more? That's such a good series of questions today. Um, I, I think I got a, oh, well, here's a quick one. Alex, do, I think, do you think aliens have made contact with the earth? Uh, you know, I haven't seen any evidence of that, but it wouldn't shock me. I mean, the world, the, the, the uh, space is awfully vast and it wouldn't shock me just by the numbers for there to be uh, other creatures like us in it. It wouldn't shock me if they had advanced beyond us. It wouldn't shock me if they had come to... But I don't know why they wouldn't just say hi, you know? Maybe maybe we're such... To them, we're such animals. They're such gods. They can't even... They don't, don't even realize they could communicate with us. I don't know. But no, I've seen no evidence of that. But let me put it this way. If tomorrow they came forward and said, yeah, we've been here for 50 years, I, I would be awestruck, but I wouldn't be surprised. I would think like, yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Tickety-boo tickety news. So, Black Panther, a Marvel superhero thing, and you know I'm no big fan of superhero stories. Black Panther opens this weekend. It's supposed to break all kinds of box office records, although you never know if that's going to be true or not. But it's leave it to the social justice warriors to take a superhero film and turn it into an occasion for hatred and division and, you know, just like the most obnoxious. They're saying that on Rotten Tomatoes, where it's gotten like a 98% critics rating, they're saying that like they're throwing people off if they give it a bad review. They're banning them from the site. I don't know if that's true, but I have heard this. And, and people are just getting so upset if anybody makes any criticism of it. No criticism of it is allowed. What do you think that's going to do? They social justice warriors, do they know? Do they know they ruin everything? One woman on Twitter said that she's not going to go that first weekend because she doesn't want, she's white, and she doesn't want to suck the joy out of the experience of the black people there. And I thought like, so who are you going to suck the joy out of? You know, I mean, you're going to be sucking the joy. Obviously, a person like you is going to be sucking the joy from someone. Who's it going to be if not the black people watching this? So the New York Times ran an article, uh, who's allowed to wear a Black Panther mask? Who is allowed to wear? And they were lamenting. They're so confused because one of the great things, of course, about you know blacks becoming part of, more a part of our, our society as they have is that 
kids don't care. It, when Jackie Robinson, one of the great triumphs of Jackie Robinson was that suddenly little kids were pretending, little white kids were pretending to be Jackie Robinson. That's a triumph. So little white kids wanting to be Black Panther, that's a good thing, right? I mean, that's that's what we, we, we want. And we just hear Nancy Pelosi, how proud she was of her grandchild who wanted to be brown. So, you know, who's allowed to wear a Black Panther mask? How about this? How about kiss my tuchus? You know, I'll wear any damn thing I please because I'm an American. How would that, how would that be? You know, and the thing is, when I was at the prayer breakfast, all, there were all the, you know, people got up. Most of them were Christian. There's one rabbi, and he's, he's an old guy. And he worked for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and Simon Wiesenthal was a Nazi hunter, and he hunted Nazis down. So I'm not saying he shouldn't have talked about this, but he gets up and he starts talking triumphantly about bringing the Nazis to justice. And I guess he's promoting his center, but I was sitting there, and I'm a Jew who became a Christian, and I'm still that still makes me a Jew in some ways, uh, certainly racially and certainly in my love of the Jewish people and my love of my heritage. And I was sitting there thinking, like, you know, I, I, I write in my memoir, uh, the great good thing about the Holocaust. I understand what it is. It is a major, major event in human history, and it certainly, and it is the end of Europe as far as I'm concerned. It's the period on the life of Europe. But after a while, is that who the Jews want to be? Do the Jews always want to be about who killed us last? And I mean, certainly the Jews are the most oppressed people who have ever walked the face of the earth. No one can take their thorny crown away. But is that all they want to be? And of course not. Of course not. You know, they want to. They want you to know that they're entertainers and uh, writers and 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 bankers and scientists and win Nobel prizes right and left. That's you know that's what you want to talk about. How long do the blacks want to be victims? How long do they want to be slaves? How long that, is that how they want us to see them? And the thing is, I don't believe that the majority of blacks want to live like that or be seen like that. I believe they're being sold a bill of goods by the left so much. You know, there was an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal, the, their review uh, by Steven Pinker about how wonderful these last 50 to 100 years have been. How how much progress there has been since the Enlightenment. Uh, so, you know, disease, there's less disease, there's so much less poverty. Uh, there's, there's food for, you know, we, we've increased our population uh, by millions, and yet there's more food. There's more energy. We thought we we're going to run out of energy. We've got more energy. Soon we'll be able to harness the sun. There'll be even more energy. I mean, things are, are going great in that regard. In America, in America, Bigotry is vanishing. It has vanished at a systemic level. It has vanished at a government level. It is as close as it has ever been since the ancient Roman Empire to, vanish, be, to vanishing on a local level. Let it go. They won't let it go because it's the source of their power. We're going to be talking about uh, more of these issues tomorrow with Douglas Murray. Be there for that. I'm also, I've also got something to say about Terminator and stuff I like. I've got a, I had this incredible revelation about the Terminator uh, film, the first Terminator film. So be there for that. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We will see you again for our last day of the week tomorrow. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo and Jacob Jackson. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Copyright forward publishing 2018.